0: Jesus, would you become so clear to us this morning? Would we see you clearly this morning? Because Lord, we want our circumstances to change, but what we need most, what we want most this morning is to see you. So come, Lord Jesus, gather with your bride. We're here for you. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Church, you may be seated. Good morning. Good morning, church. My name is Shane. I am one of the pastors here at Metro Life Church. I'm so grateful that you would gather with us and worship Jesus. Uh, at this point our service, we dismiss our fourth through sixth graders. You see a sign right here for Bridge 46. It's a class for just for you during this time of the service. You'll be back during the last song of worship i see some getting up and heading out they're going to go out this way and just so you know church if you only see a few there are several back there already and they've been working on a christmas production for the church that's why they're not in here right now well church what a week this has been just a week ago i had no idea that there was even a storm coming let alone one that would impact so much of our lives some of us in this room this morning still have no power I am so sorry. Others, I imagine, are walking through the process of insurance claims. And others still have large limbs or even trees down on their property. I want you to know, we want you to know, that we as a church, a people, everyone around you right now, we're right here with you. We don't want you to be overlooked. And so if you have any need, we want to support and care for you because we love you. We just need to know that you need help. You're not bothering us. You're not presuming too much. So if those are the lies that come up in your head when you think of a need you have, you say, well, it's too small to even mention. Please, please, please let us know. You reach out to Chip. You can reach out to me. You can reach out to your community group leaders. We want to be there for you. We just need to know. I want to encourage you greatly, church. We didn't know this storm was coming at the beginning of the month, but God did. And so, God put it in our heart to start a food drive at the beginning of September. And we collected pantry goods, and this past week, uh, the day before the storm hit, we were able to deliver 1,000 pounds of pantry goods to Christian help. Church, amen. How, how good is our God that he allows us to be a part of feeding people this week as they go through recovery of the storm? People who didn't get to work last week, who are already living paycheck to paycheck. People who have no power and can't keep food that would spoil can now pick up non-perishables. Church, God is so good. I'm so glad that we were able to walk in that good work. It's been a strange week, but can I tell you, it's also been a joy this week to see what came right after the storm. And I know that that's a strange statement. The storm brought destruction and disruption. But right on the heels of that, I could see the church bringing love and restoration. Whether it was Jeremy Price cutting a tree off a member's fence or Jim Bishop delivering a shop back to another. Justin Jones bringing a generator and several tanks of gas to one member's home or Matt Frank walking down the street to check up on someone. Or Heather Mellenchamp clearing member's lawn or the countless things that I have no idea of because you're just being the church. The calls, the texts, people reaching out and making sure others are okay. Church, you are carrying the love of Jesus into this world. Can I exhort you to something this coming week? In Matthew chapter 9, after Jesus looked at the crowds around him, it says that he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He then looked at his disciples and said this, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Church, there are harassed and helpless people around us in Florida this morning. This storm has exposed physically what was spiritually already there. And As a church, can we pray together that we would have the eyes of Jesus, that we would see people around us and have compassion on them, This week, we can walk in selfless love. For those who have power, we can invite people into our homes to take showers, watch TV with us, charge their devices, or even sleep in an air conditioned room. We can not only clear our own lawns, but we can go to our neighbors and clear theirs. We can bring our goods to those who have less than us, and we can just have a conversation with someone we normally wouldn't maybe someone who is lonely. And all of this can lead to giving their greatest need. That we could introduce people to Jesus this week. Church, the harvest is plentiful around us this week. The workers are few. But here's the thing. The workers, they're right here this morning. Church, the workers are you. So let me pray for you before we preach the word of God and go out into this world. Lord, thank you for the safety that many of us have experienced. Thank you for your mercy. Lord, we lift up anyone impacted by the storm, small and big, here in central Florida and on the coast. Lord, we pray in the midst of all of this, Lord, would your church, your bride, your body, would it shine brightly in love? Lord, we ask as we think about our week and we think about the things we want to do and the things that we need to do, Lord, would you give us a love like yours? Would we see people around us and not see obstacles to things that we want, but Lord, would we see people and have compassion on them? And would we go to them? And Lord, I ask I ask that you would give the boldness to us as a church to preach the good news of Jesus. And we pray right now, Lord, that you would call people out of darkness into your marvelous light. And Would you use the simple things, the simple ways that we try to love, to soften hearts. We ask all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, church, I want to ask you a question. Have any of you grown up with Carmen's music? Oh, yeah. Yeah? <laughs> For those who don't know, he's a Christian musician who would write all these elaborate story songs. I remember as a kid listening to them, just being caught up in my mind. And I know it's because of Carmen that I often think of a courtroom first when I think about my sin. He wrote a song called The Courtroom. Has anyone here heard that song? A couple of you? All right well maybe you've heard this example before god is our judge we stand guilty before him covered in our sins and satan is our prosecutor the accuser and he is going on at length about the numerous ways that you have broken god's law and he doesn't need to even lie He's actually telling the truth. There's so much examples of us breaking God's law that he can go on and on and on. And, And there's a book before the judge, God the Father, with every one of our sins written in it. The court case is winding down, and it's clear to everyone, you are guilty. But then something strange happens. Your defense attorney enters the courtroom. Jesus Christ. Yeah, he pleads a defense on your behalf. It's it's not how good of a person you are. It's not that, oh man, he's a nice guy, she's a sweet girl, they tried really hard. It's none of that. It's reminding the courtroom, reminding everyone there that Jesus died in your place. The punishment for all of those sins have already been meted out, and the blood of Jesus has washed away all of your sins. Satan is incensed and demands that God, the judge, look at the book with your sins recorded again. But when he does, the pages were full, are now completely blank. And instead, the judge pulls out another book. Satan is losing his mind. He's upset as the judge lifts up the book of life. And he lays it there and opens up and finds your name in there. It's a wonderful picture. It's a biblical picture. The Bible is full of legal language when talking about our sin. Justification is a legal word. It means you've been declared righteous. God is portrayed in scripture over and over again as the judge of the world. The Bible is also filled with accounting language. When talking about our sins, our sins are paid for. You are debtors to grace and so on. What's my point this morning? I think rightly when we think about legal and accounting language, I think often we think about legal and accounting language when we think about how God sees and deals with our sinfulness. This is a good biblical way of thinking about these things. But but when God in the book of Hosea wants to give us a picture of how he sees the sinful rebellion of his people, he doesn't use the picture of law or accounting. He paints the picture of a broken marriage. He focuses not on a courtroom, but a bedroom. Far from the stony judge who sits in a stuffy chair and remains impartial, God is a husband whose wife has left him for the bed of others. It's a picture that evokes more emotions, heartache, jealousy, and betrayal. What could this picture teach us this morning about God and our sin? Well, before we get there, let's go through our passage together this morning. Let's take our time to understand the picture in its details. And then we'll take a look at how this might shape our view of the gospel. If you have a Bible, please open up to Hosea chapter 2. Over the past few weeks, Chris and Seth have preached passages where Hosea's life reflects the reality of God and his people. Hosea was called to pursue a woman of whoredom, a woman who would leave him time and time again to pursue lovers. In our passage today, we moved away from Hosea and Gomer's marriage, though. This passage deals entirely with God's marriage to his people, Israel. It's important for us to acknowledge that up front because this passage could be very easily misunderstood. First, I want to make it clear this passage is written from God's voice to his bride, Israel. These verses are not from Hosea to Gomer. Secondly, when we read a passage like this, it can be hard not to read into the passage our own feelings. When God brings consequences to his people, his bride, for her spiritual adultery, we could easily interpret it as God being petty or vindictive. Why might we be inclined to do that? Well, because honestly, that's what we would be tempted to do, isn't it? Adultery is deeply personal and painful. The language of this passage reflects that. There is a visceral and brutal honesty in these verses, which frankly should scandalize us. God is expressing the pain of a spouse who's been cheated on time and time again. And it's because of that pain we need to guard ourselves from assigning motives to verses when it's not clear. So that being said, let's work our way through the passage. Starting in verse 2 of chapter 2. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. That she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery, adultery from her, between her breasts. What is the state we find this marriage in? It's one in the midst of complete collapse. We see in verse 2 that communication has deteriorated so badly that the children are being recruited as middlemen. Husband and wife are no longer on speaking terms. The mother or the children who are being charged with pleading to the mother were likely a faithful remnant in Israel. They were to prophetically speak out in their culture to call the nation of Israel back to spiritual faithfulness. The reference to whoring from her face and adultery between her breasts is telling. It's the picture of putting on makeup and wearing jewelry. It's God's wife is not being pursued by lovers. It's that she's pursuing them. You know, I love watching my wife get ready for a date. I love that. She she stands in front of the mirror and she puts on makeup. She takes her time. Sometimes she makes a mistake and it takes longer and she's at it again. She goes into the closet and she comes out wearing something, looks at it, looks at me, and goes back in the closet and changes again. And I love watching it because it builds anticipation. It builds anticipation for our date. My wife knows what I find attractive and I know what she finds attractive. The intentionality we put into what we wear and how we look for one another communicates intimacy and care. But I can't imagine the pain and heartache I would feel if I watched my wife getting ready for a date. She's in the bathroom looking in the mirror. She's putting on makeup. She goes in the closet. She puts on new shoes and a dress. She comes out, looks at it, decides it's not good enough, goes back in. She walks out finally. She's ready for the date, and she is stunning. She's beautiful. And then I watch her go out the front date. Our front door, and go on a date with another man. That is the picture we have in this passage. God is saying, children, tell your mother to stop. What could have served intimacy in the marriage is perverted into something painful. The intimacy is so broken in this marriage that interjected in the first part of verse 2 is a statement, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. This could be a declaration of divorce. And God in this marriage would have every right. But I think it's best to take this as a statement, as assessment of the state of their union, and maybe even a threat. That they're not living as if they're married right now. Israel's not acting as a wife, and God is saying, well, maybe I should do the same then. How do I get that? Well, the context of this verse, and especially next week's passage, points to a God who is saving his marriage. This points to an incredible truth that we'll revisit later in the sermon, that no matter how unfaithful God's people are, he will remain faithful. But all this leads to a question. How did Israel get to this place? God has, has always been faithful to Israel. So how did the marriage between God and Israel break apart? Why is she pursuing other lovers? Let's look back at our passage. Verse 3 through 5. Lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born. And make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully for she said... I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Israel has two very serious problems. She has forgotten her past and she is mistaken about her present. Let's take them one at a time. First, she's forgotten her past. In verse three, God says that he's going to strip her naked, literally to exposing her but but why to make her as in the day she was born it's a quick reference but it's important israel as a nation has existed for hundreds of years it's been a long time since their days in egyptian slavery even longer from when they existed well, all that existed of israel was a promise to a man called abraham god called his people out of slavery He did this through signs and wonders, liberating them from a foreign nation. He guarded them with a pillar of fire from the Egyptians who chased after them. He parted the Red Sea so they could cross safely. He lured the Egyptians in and he defeated Israel's enemies. God met them and dwelt amongst them as a pillar of smoke and fire. He provided water from a rock, manna every morning, and even quail. In the midst of complete barrenness, God provided. He brought them to the promised land, one which was occupied, and he drove out the nations before them. God lovingly provided for his bride and created the nation of Israel. Their history is story after story of God providing, protecting, redeeming, rescuing, and dwelling with his people. And God says, I'm going to strip her bare to the days when she was just born. He's going to remind the nation of Israel of what it was like. Now this is one of those points where I said we have to resist reading into the passage motives. God is saying in verse 3, he will strip her naked, make her like a wilderness, make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. We can read that and think God is vindictive. But then we would be making the same mistake as Israel. We'd be forgetting who God has always been. God loves his people and he will not forsake them. He's been merciful and gracious. He's proved this time and time again. Israel has disobeyed him. Israel has pulled away his bride, his people. And he continually goes after them. And so when we read this, we can't conclude that he's vindictive. That it has to be something more. I want to take a step away from the marriage analogy for one moment. Because because this is important. I, I don't want us to confuse these analogies and have a picture of a marriage. And I'm about to talk about punishment and discipline. That is not in that. God has another picture of his relationship with his people. A father with his children. And I want us to consider that for just one moment. It's described, God doesn't vindictively or aimlessly punish his children. He punishes his children always as a means of disciplining them. See, punishment is a result of, some, of some, doing something wrong, right? You do something wrong, you get punished. And there's a way to do that with no intention behind it. It could literally just be, I'm metting out justice, right? You, You did the wrong thing, you get the punishment. You did the crime, you do the time. But that's not how God works with his children. Punishment in the hand of God is always used for discipline, and discipline is after making us right. See, God is pursuing forming his people and making them whole. He's Seeking after, restoring our hearts and our affections. Making us right again. And that's what God is after when he disciplines. God is willing to discipline his people to save them from themselves. So not only has Israel forgotten their past, but she's mistaken her present circumstances. Look at verse 5. I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water. My wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. This is how self-centered are those words. We'll see this more clearly in the coming verses, but Israel didn't just turn away from God. They would have thought you were crazy if you confronted them and said that they've forsaken God. Though they didn't do that, they just added things in case they needed them. Their faith became increasingly Pluralistic. Israel worshipped God and Baal. Baal was a weather god worshipped in Syria and Palestine. And I want you to imagine with me how this could have all started. They go into the promised land. They don't don't push out everyone the way God said they should. God said, hey, listen, you're going to be tempted to uh, give yourself over to their idolatry, their idols, if they still stay there. And Israel complacently does that. I want you to imagine you're a farmer with me, and we're an agrarian society, and, and you and I, we have fields, right? Maybe our fields are side by side, and our fields are doing okay this season. All right? Good job. Good job. We got, we got decent crops. We're feeling pretty good about it. But we take a trip. We go to a foreign town that's not that far away. And as you and I are walking there, we look over, and we see another farmer's field a foreigner. And in his field, he has a, an idol lifted up. He has an image lifted up over his field. And we look at it and we say, man, doesn't that field look a little better than ours? I mean, it's, it's flourishing, right? Look at the size of that, that, that crop. And it might have been your idea, maybe it's mine, but one of us has the brilliant idea, man, maybe we should do that too. We should get one of those and put it in our field we don't know we don't know how it crept into israel but but it's all the same israel added to their faith of the one true god by adding in lesser things and it can sound stupid it sounds ridiculous i mean how could they think that how could they forget their husband the one true god he gave them food and water in a desert And now they're in a flourishing land and they're tempted to think someone else is giving them stuff. Brothers and sisters, be on guard when you think the sin of others is stupid. Because it's likely you're just as stupid as them. We are. I mean, think about it. How often do you look at the world around you, you see the way the world flourishes, and you think, maybe I should do that too. I don't know what it is. Maybe you lie to your boss. Maybe you cheat on your taxes. Maybe you're tempted to try to get rich quick and you pursue these schemes to get money fast. Or or maybe you you just allow a little bit of lust in your life because everyone else is doing it. Whatever it is, we're tempted to take things that the world does, things that God says is not for his people, and say, well, it looks kind of good for them. And we add it into our faith. We take a little bit in at a time. We all know there's a test during seasons of adversity. When things are hard, when trials pile on, when sickness spreads, our faith is tested. But church, are you aware of the test during seasons of prosperity? See, abundance has a way of drowning out God. Gifts have a way of replacing the giver And we can quickly believe a lie that something we did caused our prosperity. We're called to work hard. We're called to be wise. But in the same way I suck air into my lungs, I have no control over the oxygen that's in the air around me. I am doing what I'm supposed to be doing, but that's a gift from the Lord. God is the giver of every good gift. And once our eyes fixed on the gift over the giver, we forget the giver altogether it's subtle it creeps in all the time in our lives we look at our finances we look at our bank account and we see that money and and, and there's times we look at it and we feel safe secure and we say well okay i'm good Then you see it dwindle a little bit and and suddenly your your your, your trust your your safety is under attack And if our eyes are just there, if that's the place where we get our hope, if that's where our faith is attached to, we've forgotten the giver of every gift. Israel became so blind in her adultery that she couldn't even fathom that she was doing anything wrong. So God is willing to remove his blessings and his intimacy if it means snapping her out of it. Which is why God pursues Israel by frustrating and taking away. Let's read verses six through nine together. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her path. She shall pursue her lovers but not overtake them and she shall seek them but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband for it was better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine and the oil and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they use for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain and its time and my wine and its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Do you guys remember a few weeks back when Chris preached on on God, and uh, just wonderfully on how God pursues us? Right? like I, I was sitting right here, Chris was preaching, there was tears in my eyes. I mean, when are they not tears in my eyes, but there were tears in my eyes at that moment, okay? I was emotional, I was affected by the preaching. And I just, I was the picture of God pursuing me. Let me tell you, when I was crying in that moment, I was not thinking of God pursuing me this way. First, he blocks her way. God's bride is pursuing her lovers. She is brazen, but God puts obstacles in her way. He makes it impossible for her to get there. Why is he doing this? Let's just remember the analogy we're in. If if you were married and your spouse was pursuing lovers, would you not want to put obstacles in their way? Covenantal love between God and his people, just like covenantal love in marriage is meant to be between one bride and one groom god pursues his bride by frustrating her plans then at the end of verse 7 the bride says well i'll go and return to my first husband for it was better for me than now and you might think like awesome right mission accomplished she's coming back marriage restored but you can notice something faint in these words She's returning to her husband, not out of a love or a desire, but out of selfishness. It was better for me then. See, deep down, her lovers are not the problem. Deep down, in the heart of things, her lovers are not the problem. Those aren't the ones that she loves. Her problem is that she loves herself. She loves herself more than anything. The lovers were just means of getting what she wanted, so God pursues her by taking away. Look at verse 9. He says he will take back all the things that she thought her lovers gave her because they all came from him. Just four verses earlier, the bride was calling it her bread, her drink. And now God makes it clear that those things are his. He's saying, if this is what you traded me for, I will strip it all away. I will strip it all away so it's just you and me. If the gifts I've given you are such distractions, not vindictively but lovingly, I will take them back so this marriage, it's just you and me. God is stripping down his marriage with his people all the way down to the bare bones. He wants only him and his bride to be left. God's pursuit is a ruthless pursuit. It's a love that can appear savage and brutal, but it's a love that will only rest when the object of His love has what is absolutely best. See, God can do this. God can strip everything away and be the only one left because everything they need is Him. It's who the bride was made for. It's what we were created for. Our best, the best thing for us, absolutely, is God himself. If we have him, we have what we were made for. And God is willing to take away everything else out of the picture if it means having a hundred percent of his wife's heart. You know, it's love. It's been described so many ways. We're going to sing a song at the close of service today called Reckless Love. It's poetic language. I I, I don't particularly like the word reckless love. I, 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 I think it distracts, but, but you know what? It's okay. This is poetry, and here's what it's describing. A reckless love that's willing to rip everything else away. A reckless love that's willing to pursue, to chase after, to put itself in harm's way, to get its bride's heart. That's the love we're going to be singing about. So when we sing at the end of the service about God's reckless love, I want you to picture the husband coming after you. Look at verse 10 through 13 with me. Now I will uncover her lewdness and the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them, and adorned herself with ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers, and forgot me, declares the Lord. What is happening in these verses? Well, we see the material blessings that God is stripping away. Here the bride Israel is finally finally honest with herself. She sees these blessings as her wages from her lovers, meaning she has sold herself for these things. These things are her God. As I said, God is stripping this marriage down to the bare bones, but the material goods is not enough. See, God's willing to take away all the gifts, but but remember when I said Israel would have thought you were crazy if you confronted her and saying that she rejected God? That's because they were still following all the religious trappings of their faith. They were still observing feasts and Sabbaths, but there was absolutely no love in their marriage. In other words... They were going through the motions. It was actually even worse than that because the worship of Baal had entered into the very feasts and Sabbaths that they were meant for Israel and God alone. It was as if you planned an anniversary dinner with your spouse and you get there and you find out your spouse has invited someone else to join you. Brothers and sisters, can I ask you, are you going through the motions this morning? Are you going through the motions with God? Are you just walking through the ho- hoops that you know you're supposed to, but you find your affections for God are lifeless and dead? And are you like the Israelites and that you've taken other lovers? Other things are taking passion and adoration that were meant for God and God alone. Is porn filling the ache in your heart for thrill and awe? Is TVs, movies, TikToks, and countless other medias filling the space that was meant for meaningful relationship, engagement with God? Is your finances replacing faith? Is your health Is it even good things like worship? You, you come here and you are doing the right things. You'll show up, you'll worship, you'll sing so other people see it, but in your heart you feel so, so dry in your marriage to God. God will put an end to all of this. Here we see that God will even strip the good things he's put in place for Israel for an appointed time if it means having his wife's heart again. So he declares that he will strip everything down until it's just him and his wife. And our last verse ends with the most heartbroken declares the Lord I know in Scripture. You know there's moments in Scripture where it says, thus declares the Lord? Well, try this one. This passage ends with God saying, his wife went after other lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Wow. This passage is absolutely stunning. The entirety of it. This is Yahweh. This is the God of the universe. This is the one who's all powerful and breathed everything into existence. And he breathed out these words. He breathed out Hosea 2. So that we would read it this morning. And we would get the picture of him. Him. Being a spouse cheated on. He lays his heart bare. He gives us a picture of a broken and adulterous marriage. And he ends it with saying, I'm forgotten by my bride. The very one who's supposed to love him back doesn't even remember him. You know next week's passage? It begins with the word therefore. Therefore is a powerful word. Therefore has a lot of potential. It's a terrifying word. It means that everything that came before this, therefore this will happen. Right? Because everything that just happened in the verses before, therefore this is what's going to happen. So God's wife has forgotten him and we'd be tempted to think, therefore I'm going to forget her. I'll forsake her. I'm gonna go find a better bride. Brothers and sisters, next week's passage, the, it's the very we reason I'm a Christian. Because the words that follow, therefore, in next week's passage, I'll give you a sneak peek. It's, therefore, I will allure her, romance her, woo her, pursue her, chase her. My wife has forgotten me, she has other lovers. She's chased after the world. She does not love the rightful God, but I will woo her. I'm going to win her back. That's the picture of our God. You know, at the beginning of the sermon, I said there's something to the picture of a broken, adulterous marriage that can teach us about our sin and God. Let me start with our sin, then we'll look at God. I wonder if you're like me, maybe for good reason, like I said in the intro, when you think about your sin and you're standing before God, you think in terms like justification, you think in terms like debt, judgment, and grace. I say for good reason, because these terms are gospel terms. Good news. I want you to have that language. It's the language of a courtroom I spoke about in the beginning. And on most days, if you asked me to describe the gospel using one illustration, I likely would have picked the courtroom. But here in Hosea, God himself in describing his people's sin and his love for them uses a completely different analogy. He uses one of a bedroom, not legal, but relational. Not breaking of the law, but one of breaking promises and a heart. This gets at a wonderful truth about our gospel. The atoning work of Christ has been described as a multifaceted diamond. One in which every angle that you churn it has a new and beautiful way of refracting light. Showing beauty and glory and value. One churn of the diamond and you are looking at the legal language. The declaration of righteousness before God. A slight twist of the wrist and you're staring at the beauties of adoption and the Father's heart for you. You tilt it forward and, and you're looking at Jesus, the conquering king who conquered sin and death. And like this morning, you turn it again, and you find the picture of a husband who will do absolutely anything to win the full heart of his wife. All of these are true and praise-inducing, worthy of deep reflection, but I think there's a caution for us. When we stare intently into only one side of that diamond, we can get tunnel vision. We can become blind to other aspects of truth, and sometimes a good truth can become distorted when it's not balanced by the other truths. So what does this picture say about our sin? It says our sin breaks God's heart. It's adultery. It's, you don't do a little bit of that. It wouldn't, it wouldn't bring any comfort to my wife's heart if I told her, don't worry, it was just a little bit of adultery. Let's move on. God is telling us that our sin, when he looks at it, it's a sin of a husband or a wife being cheated on and broken. I fear that for me, my focus on grace and justification has become unbalanced to the relational reality of sin. I wonder if maybe I'm not alone. Let me ask you some questions. When you sin... When you sin against God, do you quickly run to the cover of grace? And I'm not saying you shouldn't. But you're allergic to the sensation, the feeling of actual guilt of your sin. No, that's condemnation. I can't go there. I'm going to run away from this. I'm not even going to consider that this has wounded my God. Are there sins in your life that you think are not that bad, private sins you indulge in because you don't think they hurt anyone? Do you dismiss your sin by thinking God doesn't even remember my sin? He, He doesn't care at all. The picture we have this morning is that he cares very deeply. Someone is hurt. The picture we look at today reminds us that there's a deeply grieved spouse who's wooing us even as we lay with other lovers. Our sin can't just be described in legal or accounting language. It must also include adulterous language. What does this passage teach us about our God? It teaches us that God loves you far more than you know. Oh, church, what does this passage teach us about God? What is the picture we get here? was a picture of a husband saying things like, I'm going to strip you naked I, I will kill you with thirst I will punish you for your adultery. What picture does that give us of our God? Well well I want you to take that picture and I want you to look at the picture of Golgotha. Jesus Christ hanging on the cross, Bleeding out and dying, and looking at his disciples, seeing his bride in front of him, committing adultery. They ran from him. They left him. They abandoned him. Peter denied him three times. They're living like they've forgotten him. What does it teach us about our God? Who is it that's stripped naked? Who is it? Who is it that's dying of thirst? Who is it that's being punished for adultery? It's Jesus, the groom, the husband. He not only pursues his bride, not only loves her bride, not only forgives his bride, he pays the price for her disobedience. Church, this passage teaches us that there is a God who will pursue you further than you will ever pursue your sin. It means for us this morning, no matter where you are no matter what you're caught in no matter what you look at what you're doing the secret sins in your heart what your spouse knows but doesn't tell others what you know you haven't told your spouse what you haven't told your friends it tells us that god knows and he's running after you he wants you There's no but Lord, you don't know what I've done, you wouldn't have me. He says, No, I love you, my wife. And I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. Church, as I as I was praying over this passage, as we were discussing before the service. I think it's important that we just acknowledge that we're not all okay. Can we do that? Can we just take a moment and acknowledge that every single person in this room is a sinner? We've all done things we know are wrong this week, maybe even today. We're all adulterous, every single one of us. And God loves us. We go into worship as we sing about a reckless love, a love that would come down from heaven and die for us. That he might have all of us. I just think the Lord would, would, would want us to consider this morning. Have we belittled the sin in our lives, the adultery of our lives? Are we just going through the motions? Are we pretending? Is our marriage with the Lord lifeless? And I want you to consider as we sing this song that that the Lord might be calling you this morning to just acknowledge that, that you might receive grace, that you might be reminded this morning that he wants you, that he's after you, and he won't give up. And so the band is going to play. We're going to sing with them. But there's a point. I'm going to come back up here. And I'm going to ask you, if you would just raise your hand to say, the Lord is working on my heart. And I'm gonna, I, I've committed adultery against him. I don't grieve the sin against the Lord the way I should. Or, or my marriage to the Lord is lifeless. And what I want is people to come around. You can share whatever you want with them. But I want them to pray grace and life into you. Because I believe that our groom, our God, wants to meet with his bride today and tell her sweet things. So church, let's sing and then minister to one another. Before I spoke a word, you were singing over me.